afternoon and good morning to all of you. Last week, or not last week, but three weeks ago, I began a series on how exclusive is the church. And we covered the information regarding the first resurrection, and I think showed fairly conclusively, at least to this point, that there are 144,000 in the first resurrection. No more and no less. When you consider that out of 50 to 60 billion of people, or numbers of people who've lived on the face of the earth since Adam and Eve, and that's, I don't know what that is based on, except that's what some people come up with, that makes you what? If you're one of those 144,000. One in about three and a half to four million. Well, that's pretty exclusive, if you stop to think about it. Just to begin with, do we feel blessed with the knowledge we have? It's amazing to me that being as human as we are, it's so easy to get discouraged, to wallow in self-pity, to live in frustration, to wonder why we don't have more blessings or things aren't going better for us in our lives than perhaps they might be at the moment. And yet in the perspective of how many people there have been who have lived in the very few comparatively, that God has given his spirit to and given the awesome understanding of his truth to, uh, how could we get discouraged? And yet we get our minds on ourselves. That isn't the subject of this. But how can this be that out of all these nearly 6,000 years that mankind has existed, that only that many might be chosen? to be in the first resurrection. Well, there are some very clear clues in the Bible. Satan deceives the whole world, Revelation 12, 9 says. So the whole world lies in deception, with some minor exceptions. That is a general overall statement he makes, but a very true one. We also know that Israel is concluded in unbelief, so most of Israel is included in those who are deceived. We saw through history that God has always worked with a very few, starting with a very, very few from Adam until Moses, and from Moses on, we saw that even the Ten Commandments, which was written to millions of people, he said, I will have mercy on thousands, right in the Ten Commandments. So he only worked with thousands in any era so far. And we saw scripture showing that Christ will come with ten thousands of his saints, not millions, not billions, but tens of thousands. I don't want to re-preach last time's sermon, but just to give you a brief review of what we saw, and before we're done, we will see even more proof of this concept that God is only working with and bringing to the place of the first resurrection 144,000 people. But, how does this impact us now? Is this just a matter of intellectual curiosity? Does it really mean anything to us? Except that we hope that we are part of that, or one of those 144,000. Is it worthwhile discussing and talking about, and is it important to understand? Where are we today in history? Are we supposed to be preaching the gospel to the world right now? And if so, or if not, what should we be doing? As opposed to that, if we should not be doing that. 
Now we also saw last time that even as they were building the church, that a few thousand were converted right when it began in Acts 2, and a few thousand more as they proceeded through the book of Acts. But never anywhere does anyone mention millions and millions of people, but only a few thousand, and they were meeting in homes. Most homes would not hold many people. So even in the early New Testament, they were only working with a few thousand, but the ironic part of that is even that with the twelve original apostles there, with Jesus Christ having just lived and died, and very much in the memory of the people in Jerusalem, the church began to fall apart. And the warnings of Jude, James, Peter, John, and the other apostles were that false apostles were coming in, the people were falling away from the truth. They had asked Jesus Christ at one point in Matthew 24, after he had talked to the whited sepulchers, he called them in verse 23, the Pharisees, the Jews of that day, and predicted that the church would fall apart. Now, the, the disciples asked him, and, and we will turn to Matthew 24, a physical fulfillment of Matthew 24, where he said the temple would be torn down in verse 2, occurred just a few short years later in 70 A.D., when that temple, that physical temple, was torn down. Now, does that justify it then, or did it apply beyond that? And when the disciples asked Christ in Matthew 24, verse 2, Jesus said to them, See you not all these things? Verily I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? He could have easily said, well, it's going to happen in about 40 years. But he didn't. He said it would happen at the end of the age. So Christ looked beyond that physical fulfillment. He wanted this message to come to us upon whom the ends of the earth have come. So it was not just for then, it is for now. Now that physical temple was destroyed and there were some ramifications to that we will get to a little later on. But the church was falling apart, even under the apostles' administration. I think that's important for us to understand now as we get into this end of the age now. Many, many people are having trouble understanding what is happening to the church and why. And part of it has to do with this understanding of how big the church ultimately is going to be, or how big it is not going to be. Because it is so easy for us to sort of hazily go through, as we've done in the past, and say, well, there's 144,000, I don't know exactly who they are, and then there's a great multitude, and it's sort of a hazy idea of how many people God is ultimately going to bring there, and it also allows us to live in haziness and laziness as to how hard we work at being a part of it. So to limit it to this, as I think we can see the scriptures are doing, is both alarming and sobering, and yet at the same time, it's exciting to realize we might be even a part of the first fruits that are clearly delineated in uh, Revelation 7, 14, and other places as the first fruits as the church. I will go 
been saying for quite some time that the Bible was written to the church, not just to physical Israel, that there's a duality, and that virtually all the Bible has to do with the church. Ultimately, it will also fall on physical Israel, but not until later. Right now, God is not dealing with physical Israel. God is dealing with the church. And therefore, I have several times applied Ezekiel 5 to the church, not just the physical Israel that would be decimated. But we see decimation now happening in the church. And more and more, as I travel about the country and as I talk to different people here and there, I'm finding that the numbers, the proportions of Ezekiel 5 are coming closer and closer to truth. That there are spiritually sick and dying and dead all over the world out of what used to be the Church of God. When I first went to Miami in the early 60s, there were 75 to 100 people in the church there. It was a very new church. About four years later when I left there, it was between five and 600 people. It grew through the next several years until it finally reached about 1,500, just about the time Mr. Armstrong died. Now I talked to someone down there, and he says, if you put all the groups together of what's left of that church for a holy day, combine them all, you would be pushing to get 200. In Cape Town, South Africa, there were about 500 in the church there. Now if you put all the groups together, you might have 50. 100 if you count people around the list that are coming to, to the local church. The devastation is incredible. I was working with some people out of another group up in West Virginia where there had been 300 in that congregation. About a year ago when I first started dealing with them, there were only 30 left. There's Ezekiel 5 for you. 300 to 30. 10% left. This is happening all over. Well, the scattering is there, and Ezekiel said that there would be about 10% left, and even out of those, he took some hair out of his garment and threw them into the fire. So we are being put to the sword by Satan and by false ministers, and people are dying and falling around us, a thousand at one side and 10,000 at the other. Now let's go to Zechariah quickly, Zechariah 13, and see this confirmed a little bit more. Zechariah 13, and beginning in verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow, says the Lord of hosts. So this isn't just physical Israel, this is a shepherd. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. And I will turn my hand upon the little ones, for the little ones are being destroyed. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, says the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third part shall be left therein, and I will bring the third part through the fire. And will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say it is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. So two-thirds cut off and die, a spiritual disease and a sword, and one-third are saved to work with to go through the fire, and many, many of them are not going to make it as Ezekiel 5 shows. So the, the shepherds have been smitten, the sheep have been scattered, Isaiah 1, he shows a little bit more of the uh, proportions here, Isaiah 1, and verse 9. 
what the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant, and a remnant of your members about 10%, a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like Gomorrah. So God is not going to stop this until it gets down to the proportions of Ezekiel 5, Zechariah 13, and Isaiah 1 and verse 9. It is going to continue. How far will it go? We might get a clue here in Isaiah 3. Isaiah 3, while we're in the neighborhood. For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, does take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water. Amos did say there's not a famine of bread, but a famine of the word with it in the end time. For God says, I'm causing a famine. The mighty man, the man of war, the judge, the prophet, the prudent, the ancient, the captain of fifty, and the honorable man, and the counselor, and the cunning artificer, and the eloquent orator, and I will give children to be their princes, and babes shall rule over them. So he's going to take away the leaders, he says right here. And I thought it was interesting in verse 3. Notice he says, the captain of fifty will be taken away. Now when Jethro went to Moses, and Moses set up, a physical administration, they had captains of tens, captains of fifties, captains hundreds on up. But he tells us here the captain of fifty will be taken away. Well, what's the next increment down? The captain of ten. Is the church going to be broken that low? It would appear that that's what Isaiah is exactly, that's exactly what he's telling us. The captain of ten does not rule over very many. That's almost down to the family level whether it be ten families or whether it be ten in a family or two or three families that make ten, but probably ten families. For God is going to keep breaking it down, breaking it down and scattering it. And people are having trouble understanding this. But looking at these scriptures, the church is predictably, right now, getting smaller, not larger. What did he say about the wheat and the tares? Let them grow together. And that... The seed would be sown, and some would fall in rocks, some would fall in thorns, some would fall in good ground, and so on. So it's coming out that different ones are not making it, for whatever reasons, wherever they fall. How long is this going to last? How far will it go? I'll give you another clue. God says that if we exalt ourselves, we will be abased. Clear? incontrovertibly clear as the scripture. Once in a while I come across someone who says we are the very elect, or we are the righteous, or we are the Philadelphians. Everybody else is Laodicea. I heard recently of one church who called themselves the Church of God, the very elect. I don't even know who was involved. I just heard the name. So I'm not getting after anybody here in particular, believe me. But just to me, that attitude or that thought of, we are the very elect, and we'll name a church that, bothered me. Because I don't feel like the very elect. I feel like someone struggling to overcome human nature, to overcome my own sins, my own personality foibles, my own difficulties, my own discouragements, and to try to qualify to be a part of God's kingdom in any way. If the righteous scarcely be saved, where do the ungodly and sinner appear? And it scares me. It makes chills go up and down my spine to even consider that I might stand here and say, We are the very last. 
I think that's God's judgment tonight. It's not for us to assess and say, as opposed to the barely elect, or as opposed to the land of sin, I'm the very elect. I think we're setting ourselves up for a fall when we do that, or to say, we're Philadelphia, the rest of you are land of sin. You hear that once in a while. Well, naturally, we'd like to think we've got the best, and we're the best. But I think that's tantamount to exalting ourselves. And to me, that is very, very scary. And God says, if you do exalt yourself, you will be abased. Did we not do that in Worldwide Church of God? Now, it's one thing to recognize by Bible definition that that was the truth. But I think along with that, we began to get a swelled head as well. And to think that we were okay. Well, what does that do? That transforms you automatically into a land of sin, doesn't it? And God said he would blow the land of sin church out of his mouth. And that's exactly what has occurred. We all slumbered and slept. No one can stand above the rest and say, I'm the best sheep here. I believe that God has those sheep who are overcoming and growing scattered through all the groups. I don't believe there's any one group that is the true church. Because any group you look at is going to have some people who are really working hard at growing and overcoming. And that's the bottom line in Revelation 2 and 3. And you will have some who are not. So how can one group say, because I'm in this group, I'm okay? Again, that very attitude transforms a former Philadelphian into a lay of the sin. Read Revelation 3, 17 through 18. You think that you are okay. And God says, as a result of that very thought process, you aren't okay, and I will blow you out of my mouth. So until the whole church, or that part of the church that God is going to work with as he blows it apart, repents and comes to have the humility of the publican, this will continue. Got to. I would not be surprised to see some groups disappear. Maybe ours. Who knows? It depends on our attitude. Whether we exalt ourselves or not. How can you exalt yourself above your fellows? Sounds like the uh, apostles who said, or disciples who said, I want to sit on your right hand and on your left hand. Aren't we better than these others? That was their attitude. We're the very elect. These other guys can sit down below us. We're Philadelphia. I think we have to be very, very careful with that. Now let's go on in Matthew 24. I don't have time to with the subject matter at hand, go through Matthew 24 on a verse-by-verse basis, and that deserves a whole sermon in itself. But the context here, if you apply it first to the church, later to physical Israel, indicates what we see in the church today. Verse 7, for nations, people, groups, shall rise against each other, kingdom against kingdom, there shall be famine and pestilence and earthquake in different places, and spiritually speaking, we've been seeing all those things in the church occurring. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, at the same time, these things are increasing in the world as well. It applies both ways. That's sometimes why it's hard to figure out. And I think that's one reason he said down here, let him who hears understand. Because if you just apply it to physical Israel and you watch the signs, 
not too hard to understand. But when you apply it to the church, then it makes it a little harder to understand, and only a very few will understand. And that has to be those who are in the church in some form or fashion. But notice verse 9. Then shall they deliver you up to the afflicted, and shall kill you. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Isn't that a pretty good microcosm of the church today? Have those things not been happening? Yes, they have. They're going to happen in a bigger way in the world, and they will physically kill some later on. But right now, the death is spiritual. Right now, the sword is spiritual. The sickness is spiritual. The famine is spiritual. To be followed by the physical. But it is very interesting to me that we see these things occurring now in the church very clearly, and they all come before verse 14. Verse 14 says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. But the falling away, the lack of love, the deceiving, the hurting, the false ministers, come before that. But what it tells me is that Herbert Armstrong did not finish preaching the gospel around the world as a witness. That job has not been finished. It is a job yet ahead to be done. But by whom? And how is the question. Now I want to point out here before we get away from this that there is no command in Matthew 24, 14 to preach the gospel around the world as a witness. This verse does not tell the church to do that. If you look the Greek up, it's passive. There is no command. It's simply a statement of fact. This will be done. But it doesn't tell the church to do that very interesting. Now, there is a direct commission to the church, but it's not Matthew 24, 14. If you study the whole thing out, you will find that in Revelation 11 and various other scriptures put together in Zechariah, applied to Matthew 24, 14, this is the job of the two witnesses. They are the ones that will preach the gospel to every creature. Herbert Armstrong didn't come close to that. And not only that, look how big the church of God was in those years when he was there, and how many plain truths were going out, and how wide the broadcast was and how it didn't even begin to penetrate China or India or many, many places on the earth. Those people weren't warned. And think how big it would have to get in order to do that as a physical organization. It would have to be so much bigger than Worldwide Church of God that it's unbelievable to accomplish that kind of a witness. But the two witnesses won't have that problem. When they start doing the miracles and cutting off the water and turning water into blood and things of that nature, every microphone in the world will be trained at them. And the internet will be full of it. And the hatred of the whole world will be turned against them. They're the ones that are going to preach it to every preacher. But meantime, the church is being scattered. And God said, before this thing would end, the power of the holy people would be shattered. Scattered. And it is being done. Some of those who are trying to preach the gospel now are reaching great futility in what they're trying to do. They're having very, very little success at it. Why? And the answer is they don't know what God is doing right now. They know what they're trying to do, but they're wondering 
Why isn't God blessing what we're doing? And the reason is, they're not doing what God wants them to do. We'll see that. The whole context of Matthew 24 is question and answer. The whole thing is basically passive. They asked him, when will this be? What's going to happen? And he just recounted what would occur. Didn't give them any command here. And it includes the scattering, as we saw in verses 9 through 13. And that enduring to the end will become very hard, very difficult. And we are finding that, aren't we? As many of our brethren fall aside. That doesn't mean that there won't be a few who perhaps respond to the call of those who are trying to preach the gospel to the world as a witness. There are a few, and I can take you back to Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. We won't spend time there because I don't have time, but the point of it is that the householder had a harvest to get in, and he went out at 6 in the morning and hired some, and he went back all hours of the morning and the afternoon and hired more. And even in the 11th hour, an hour before quitting time, there were a few lazy souls who got up and finally went to the market to look for a job at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And even hired them. So a few will be called in in the 11th hour. And we're seeing that once in a while. Uh, some of our relatives or somebody we know suddenly gets interested in this church. And I'm sure that's happening in all the different groups here and there. But it isn't a great number. It isn't a lot of people. It's not like the early 60s and 70s and worldwide when it was just growing leaps and bounds and people were being converted by that broadcast or by God through that broadcast. So God shows a few will be called at the end. Maybe that's because others are not qualifying and therefore they're being replaced with others because the number is finite and that's the sobering, scary part of this. If we do not qualify and God cannot put his seal on you and me as one of us 144,000, then we're left out. And maybe some of those coming at the 11th hours are to fulfill some slots of those who spiritually die. But God used Herbert Armstrong not to preach the gospel around the world as a witness. He was never commanded to do that. He used him as a vehicle to call many, many compared to the numbers that God has always worked with. A few thousand here and a few thousand there. So if he called 150, 250,000 people by Herbert Armstrong's ministry, out of those then, he begins to choose who will be a part of that final number. If some aren't converted at all, they're just there. Their time will come in the second resurrection because they are theirs, not we. And unless you are truly converted and are weak, then uh, your judgment is not coming right now. Anybody want to take a bet that there's wheat or tares? My prayer is that if I'm a tear, God will convert me to wheat before this is over. I hope I'm not a tear, but I guess there's always that response, that's a possibility because God said he couldn't tell one from the other, didn't he? He said, let them grow together. And in the end, some will have wheat on the top and some will not. I don't even know yet if I'm a wheat. I don't know whether, maybe you've got it figured out. Maybe you've got little grains coming out your ears by now, so that that's true. 
Luke Armstrong focused on Matthew 24, 14, but he accomplished Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Let's go back and read that. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Now here is a direct commission to the church, to the disciples, and the church that will be built. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go you therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. All nations. So not just Israel. They didn't understand yet. They went immediately to the Jews, because they figured that was it, the place to go. But God later showed them that they were also going to preach to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles could be part of spiritual Israel. But this is a direct commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. So Mr. Armstrong thought he was preaching the gospel to every creature, and it didn't turn out that way. You know, hindsight is 20-20. It's easy to see that that never occurred under him. And that after him, the power, the great numbers, the tithes, the ability to do a bigger work has been shattered and scattered, and it's still being scattered. Therefore, if the power is scattered and the end comes right thereafter, there is no opportunity for a big work to be done again, except that of the two witnesses who will be commissioned to preach to everyone. They're the ones that do it. But our job is then to make disciples. That has been the job of the church from the time it was instituted, even back in the very beginning in, in ancient Israel. God worked with the few, bringing them forward to be first fruits. So the, the job of the church has always been to call people that God might then begin to choose. Now, God was doing the calling. Don't get me wrong. I mean, you have to... <laughs> Be careful how you say these things. God is doing the calling. No man can come except the call come from the Father. I understand that. But he's using us to deliver the message, to work through human beings to get the job done. But that has been our job. Now, John Reidenbaugh has told me, and I don't remember myself, but he said that he heard Mr. Armstrong change three or four different times on who he thought the 144,000 were. He never did fully comprehend. And I think there's a reason for that. The reason being that God wanted a worldwide calling of people that he could then begin to work with. And if Mr. Armstrong had thought, well, there are only 144,000, then he might have slacked off a bit and thought, well, maybe we got enough now. But he kept going full force, as, as fast as he could, as often as he could, as big as he could, to spread that gospel as much as he could. Now for us, perhaps it's time to understand how big the first resurrection is going to be. Because God is not going to call a big number anymore. He's already basically called, except for a few eleventh hour perhaps, all that he's going to work with. All that he's going to make up the 144,000 through. And maybe we need to understand then how important this is, if it is indeed that finite, for us to be on the ball. It should be energizing for us, not to be left out. Haggai 2.3 is just as true now as it ever was. Where he's talking about the former temple, remember the, the, the uh, context of Haggai, where people were not building the church of God, 
And God jumped on them and said, Quit building your own homes. Quit going about the things of this world and get busy building the church. What is the church? The living stones. Us. Building the church. And he said, he looked back and he said, verse 3 of chapter 2, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Compare the worldwide church of God now with what it was in the mid-70s. And it's like nothing. And he tells us to get to work, that he's going to shake the earth very soon now. And that he's going to build a ladder house. And he's going to make it a glorious house, and it will be better than that which went before. But this carries on over into the millennium, not right now. Because the scattering is going to occur, and then the problems are going to hit the nation. Now, let's go to Revelation 21. <clears throat> I didn't get into this at all in the first sermon, but I want to touch on it briefly and then move on. Because here in chapter 21, in verse 2, he talks about the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the church is the bride. Says so very clearly here. Now let's go to verse 9. And there came to me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Now what we are going to see in the next few verses are the bride, the Lamb's wife. I don't know how you could put it in any clear Greek or English. And he showed me Holy Jerusalem. The church is referred to as Jerusalem in different places. Now, I don't want to get into this right at the moment very deeply, but you can read through it. And what are you going to find in the verses that follow the description of the bride, the wife of Christ? You're going to find 12 tribes, of 12,000 people each. You're going to find the city itself measured 12,000 furlongs around. You're going to find a wall exactly 144 feet or cubits cubit high, over 6,200 feet, but 144 cubits. What are these numbers? They could be multiplied a lot of different ways to come up with 144,000 that we read about in Revelation 7 and 14 in the last sermon. So when he describes the bride, he describes the 144,000. That is the bride. Those are the parameters. Those are the limits. That's who she is. First Thessalonians 4 and verse 17 describes the first resurrection. First Thessalonians 4. Verse 17. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. When we rise to meet him as the bride, as the first fruits, the dead in Christ rising first, right here in the context, we will always be with him from that moment forward. And Revelation 5, verses 9 through 10, which I'll turn to now and read as well.
So verse 10 for the moment. And has made unto us our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So the bride will rise to meet Christ. They will never leave his side. They follow him everywhere he goes, as we read last time. And they'll reign on the earth during a thousand years. Revelation 14. Let's go back there just briefly. Here he says, uh, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads, sealed, and the voice of thunders, and so on. And they sung a song, as it were, a new song in verse 3, before the throne, and before the four beasts, and the elders, and no man can learn that song, but thee. That's all. Just 144,000. No one else. <laughs> it's what we deem from the earth. What does redeem from the earth mean? Jesus Christ bought us. He paid for us. First, first Corinthians 6.20. We are bought with a price. First Corinthians 6.20. So we are redeemed from the earth, bought from the earth, by Jesus Christ's blood, by his sacrifice. Those are the ones that are redeemed. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. What does it mean, virgins? Does that mean they were born in the church, grew up in the church, and never had anything else taught? No, 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us what a virgin means in terms of God's language. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 2. Now, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church which, remember, was full of sin. The Corinthian church uh, received a great deal of trouble from Paul over their sins. Verse 2, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So these sinners could be spiritual virgins. Once the repentance comes, the sin is washed away, and they're made white and clean before God. So he's speaking of the church here. Paul very clearly shows that. They're the virgins, the ones that have been cleansed, the ones that are white and pure. Doesn't mean they always were, because the Corinthians certainly weren't. But they become that way. Now I'm going to leave Revelation 21 right now and consider some other questions but Revelation 21 and 22 will become very, very important to the story a little later on. But the Bible is written uh, in many respects like a novelist would write or a historian when you have four or five stories going or four or five different lives going. Uh, when you're writing a book, you don't write about Joe that did this and the next sentence you write about but John was over on the other part of the world doing this and uh, Bill was in another part of the world doing this, and you have to catch up in each paragraph what every one of them was doing. You know, they'll, they'll make a chapter about Joe, and then they'll come and pick up Bill's life and bring it to the, to, up to date, and then they'll pick up John's life and bring him up to date, and then they'll start back over with Joe and what he was doing. And the Bible's written that way, too. So right now, I want to do a couple of insets before moving on with this story, and the reason is that there are some questions I posed last time which I did not answer, did not have time, that we need to get to today, because if you have questions in your mind about what we've covered so far, 
you're going to be thinking about that so much that you can't concentrate on where we're going next. So let's do a couple of insets and answer a couple of questions. And the first one is in John 10. John chapter 10. And the verse itself that is primarily in question is verse 16. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Now who are the other sheep and who are this fold? Is this fold the church? We've assumed that, I think, through the years. I mean, we, God tells us we're this fold, aren't we? And he has other sheep apart from us. We like to look at things from our own perspective. But is that the way this should be viewed? In this modern era of the church, we've often said, well, we must be this fold that Christ was talking about, and therefore any others that he's working with over in Russia or South America or the Seventh-day Adventists or Messianics or whoever else he might be working with are part of a different fold that he has. Being interpreted that way by many in the church today and increasingly so, which is partly what got me on this subject in the first place. Now let's pick up the context here <clears throat> before we get into John 10 too much. Let's go back to John 7. Excuse me, my voice is dry. I'll get a little drink of water. John 7 and verse 2. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And as we go through, we will find that Jesus was talking about going to the feast. He went up late. Some of his brothers and so on went up before. And verse 14 or no, let's say he went up also in verse 10 to the feast. And then in verse 14, about the middle of the feast, he went to the temple and taught. And he was basically teaching to whom? Who inhabited the temple? The Jews. Not his disciples. He only had a few at this point, and they certainly probably were present. But he was essentially talking to the Jews. Or to physical Israel. And we go through, let's see, verse 37. <clears throat> In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Now that's the message of the last great day, isn't it? In a nutshell. Right now, we're under John 6:44. If any man come, he must be called. Specifically, individually, by God. But only once the millennium comes, and the great white throne judgment, the Feast of Tabernacles, in particular the last great day, is salvation open to any and everyone. Whosoever, excuse me, whosoever will, he says, in more than one place, can come at that time. And the context is always millennial or great white throne judgment. So before that, he's not talking to anyone but the church. So this was prophetic, what Christ was preaching on the last great day of the feast. So this is the context that we're establishing. Uh, Isaiah 55, 1, we might tie in there briefly. Isaiah 55 and verse 1. Here the setting is clearly millennial. He says, So everyone that thirsts, come ye to the waters, and he that has no money, come you, buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk, without money and without price. So he's speaking of a time when salvation is open to everyone, but not now. 
Now let's see, chapter 8 and verse 1 of John. Let's flip back there again. Chapter 8, verse 1 of John. Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So this is the morning after the last great day, apparently. And here's where the woman brought, was brought to him in terms of adultery. And the context now is still of what he was teaching the day before and the questions that they had brought to him the day before. Now what did he tell this woman? I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Did he try to convert her? No, it wasn't her time. She wasn't being called. She was slated for the second resurrection, the great white throne judgment. So he said, go and sin no more. Your life is going to be better if you don't. But he didn't try to convert her or make an altar call here. Now, chapter 9 and verse 39. I don't have time to go through every bit of all these chapters to show, but just to hit the highlights, verse 39 of chapter 9, And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. So those who had seen God somewhat, the physical Israelites, were made blind, and he concluded them in blindness, Romans 9 through 11. And some who saw not before would begin to see, both of Judah and of the Gentiles, as time went on. And he told them in verse 41, the Jews that he was talking to, when they asked if they were blind, he said, if you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say, we see. Therefore, your sin remains. And their sin remains to this day. Wiped out in death, but not in the blood of Christ. And it won't be until the second resurrection when they come up. And then he begins to tell them, Truly, truly, I say to you, he that enters not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And he goes on to say that he is the shepherd. Who were they rejecting? Jesus Christ. They thought they could get in by just worshiping as they understood it, the God of the Old Testament. But they didn't need to accept Jesus Christ. And he was telling them, if you don't come through me, you don't get there. You can try to get there through Moses if you want to. And that's how they were trying. They were trying to go through Moses, not Christ. And the Mosaic Law is what they were voting on. Because you can't get in that way. Verse 3, To him the porter opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. He knows specifically who they are and calls them by name. When he puts forth his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. These people didn't know his voice. They didn't follow him. They tried to kill him over and over. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him. And verse 7 he says, I am the door of the sheep. Verse 9, I am the door. If you enter in through me, you'll be saved, and go in and out and find pasture. And then he talks about hirelings in verse 12. He was an hireling and not the shepherd who's owned the sheep or not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. <laughs> the wolf catches him and scatters the sheep, and the hireling flees. And then he emphasizes again that he is the good shepherd in verse 14, and I know my sheep and, and am known of mine. The Jews did not know him. The disciples did come to know him, didn't they? I lay down my life for the sheep. Who did he lay his life down for? For those who would become a part of the church 
on Pentecost fifty days later. Well, no, no, I think he's talking he's the last great day here, but very shortly thereafter when he started the church. Excuse me. Now, to understand verse 16, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Now who, again, was he addressing? This fold was the Jews. I have other sheep that are not of you Jews, is what he's saying. This fold was not the church. This fold today is not the church. This fold was physical Israel then, and is physical Israel today. Because physical Israel today is simply the offspring of these Jews. And that's not who he was calling. <laughs> I have other sheep, not of this fold, not of you Jews, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Now what was Christ doing at that very moment in time? He was working with twelve disciples, or in a larger sense, 120 people perhaps. But he was already beginning to work with other sheep in a spiritual sense that were not of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They were spiritual Israel, the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16. He was starting his church. He told you, I have sheep that aren't in your fold, people. I'm starting another fold. We'll see that very clearly as we go through this. Therefore, does my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again? Who did he die for? The early New Testament church and us. Now, he died for the world in a larger sense. But what he's saying is, your people are not in my spiritual fold. The context here is of the millennium and the great white throne judgment. That's when they would come up, and there won't be one fold and one shepherd completely through the whole world until we reach the end of the great white throne judgment. Only then will everyone who is going to be converted be converted, and everyone who is not converted be burned up, and that's the end, and then there will be only one show, uh, one soul, and one shepherd. Until then, there's the physical soul of Israel, there is the spiritual soul. The church is the other soul that he was starting to build. Context is a time of judgment on these people who are not yet receiving a chance at salvation. Let's see, where was I here? I got away from my notes and go back through and see what, uh, what I might have missed. Uh, today, spiritual, spiritual Israel, the church, are still the only ones who have heard him, the only ones who have recognized him, the only ones who have begun to follow every word of God. Even the world out there who recognizes his name does not recognize his gospel. The rest of Israel still lies in darkness, and they're concluded in Romans in unbelief, as I said in Romans, that they might be saved in their order. 1 Corinthians 5.23, Paul says that there's an order of resurrections, and each will be, saved, will be saved in his order. Revelation 20 continues that thought. I won't turn to these, but you're all very familiar with those particular scriptures where he shows uh, the rest of the dead live not till a thousand years were over, and so on. So we understand the first, the second, and the third resurrection. But these Jews would not have their opportunity until then. 
disobeys are the original fold, the other fold is the church. When will there be one fold then and one shepherd? Once this is finished, as I said, now let's go to Ezekiel 37 and, and show this in the scriptures. Ezekiel 37 <coughs> is one that we've always gone to on the last great day of the feast. And we've shown very clearly, I think, that this is the whole house of Israel who are resurrected to physical life and they have their opportunity of salvation as being a part of the spiritual church in the second resurrection. So we're, we're very familiar with that, but let's go on down now to verse 11. <clears throat> then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried, our hope is lost, we are cut off for our parts. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves, and so on. Verse 14, And shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I shall place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it, that I performed it. Now let's notice verse 16. Moreover, you son of man, take you one stick and write upon it. For Judah and for the children of Israel as companions, then take another stick and write upon it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions, and join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in your hand. So God is going to join all the folds of Israel together, ultimately, but this doesn't occur until the second resurrection. Then is when they are brought and given an opportunity of salvation. Now notice Isaiah 56, 8. Isaiah 56 and verse 8. The Lord God, which gathers the outcasts of Israel, says, Yes, or I still will, or it will happen that. Yes, will I gather others to him beside those that are gathered to him. So this is going to be a continuation. If you go back to chapter 55, verse 1, which we already read, we can see there that he's saying at a time that he will say to everyone, Come to the waters, anyone who will. And that how David physically will be resurrected as king over all Israel at that time, and that Israel will be gathered to him besides those that are gathered. Well, some have already been gathered in the first resurrection. But then he starts gathering others, see, in the, the millennium in the second resurrection. Ephesians 1 and verse 10. Ephesians 1, <clears throat> verse 10. Well, let's begin in verse 9, because Paul is talking to the Ephesians, and he says, Having made known to us the mystery of his will, the mystery of God, the mystery of the ages, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself, this is my purpose, Paul is explaining of God, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. So in the fullness of times, they will all be gathered into one. Not part way through, but in the fullness of the times that the Bible indicates. And we recognize the fullness of the time of the restitution beginning with the church in Acts 3.21 and continuing on through the millennium and the great white throne judgment until the fullness of those times are done, then all Israel will be saved. 
but not until. Now let's go down to, uh, back to John 10. Back to John 10, <clears throat> in verse 22. A little later on, there was a division among the Jews about all this. He says there in uh, verse 19, and they accused him of having a devil, as you go on down. And then in verse 22, and it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus left in the uh, temple on Solomon's porch. And they asked again if he really was Christ. Now notice in verse 26. But you believe not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. And this is still a big question with them. And he said, you are not of my sheep. I have sheep of another fold, not you. In other words, you don't believe because you are not of my sheep. And then he said the true spiritual sheep could not be plucked from his hands. He's sealing them. He was just beginning the church. He was working with the disciples before he gave them the power. Now let's go on to Matthew 17 for a moment. And he hits them right between the eyes. I don't know whether all of you have heard it or not, but Richard gave a sermonette on the transfiguration here in Matthew 17. And I won't take the time to go through it all, get the sermonette if you haven't yet heard it. But he showed very clearly here what occurred. That this was the Feast of Tabernacles setting. The scene was set when they had this vision with James, Peter, John, and Christ. And they immediately said, because of the scene that they saw in the vision, let's build tabernacles. It's time for the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, Moses and Elijah were there in vision, verse 4, and while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, hear you him. That's the whole message. That's the whole reason for the transfiguration. You can't depend on Moses for salvation. Listen to my son. He was explaining to his disciples that Jesus Christ is the one. He is the Lord. He is the shepherd. But you can't get there through Moses. And this is something that they would be confronted with from the Jews over and over and over again. But he made it very clear to them. What God was doing was simply placing Christ above Moses and, and Elijah in their thinking and respect. This was inside information that he was giving them. And they were not to disseminate it until after his resurrection. And what would that do? Well, after his resurrection, it would prove his messiahship and would give them powerful ammunition on Pentecost to say, this is the Christ. He is the one who died. He's the one who's been resurrected. And this new thing he was showing the disciples would be totally foreign to the Jews and, as we shall see, quite unacceptable to the Jews. For they always say, we have Moses and the prophets. Who is this Christ? Now back to John 9. Back to John 9. And verse 28. <clears throat> then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. 
We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. So you see, they were trying to get in a different way. Now there's something going on here. Matthew, uh, let's go to Matthew 21 and verse 43. Matthew 24 and verse 43. Here again, he's speaking to the physical Jews, the Pharisees, and so on. 21.43 Therefore say I to you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. How does God know us? By our fruits. And he's telling the Jews, I am taking the authority away from you. I am going to give it to the disciples. And that's exactly what he did. Remember Matthew 16, verse 18, just a little ways before this, where he told the disciples, I told Peter, verse 18, Matthew 16, And I say also to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the grave shall not prevail against it. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, that's quite a mouthful. But he gave the authority to the disciples at that point, or to Peter particularly, not to the Jews anymore. Remember he had said, chapter 23 I think it is, that the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, do what they say. But it was not very long after this that Moses' seat, the temple there, was destroyed. The veil of the temple was rent in twain. Access to God the Father. And the Holy of Holies was given to the church. And the Jews no longer had it. The Jews are not important anymore spiritually. Once that temple veil was rent, they no longer had a physical temple. They no longer had a physical priesthood that meant anything. The Holy of Holies was open to you and me. Romans 9. Romans 9, verse 26. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. For God had put away physical Israel in that marriage contract and said, You're not my people anymore. But then he started a church and said, These are my people, the church of the living God. So he overturned the power and the authority from the Jews to the church. Verse 11, or chapter 11 and verse 11 makes it even clearer. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come to the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. So through the Jews' fall, God then offered salvation to the Gentiles, as well as to those Israelites who would listen. But the power and the authority were then in the church, not in the Jews. 11 verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, but you should be wise in your own conceits. The blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And then Israel will be saved. But physical Israel now is blind. The physical Jews are blind. They don't know Christ. They don't know what's going on. And it will not be until after the great white throne judgment that they will be one flock, one people, under one shepherd. 
Galatians 6.16 says that the church is the Israel of God. He gives that power to the church. Acts 7. I'm about to run out of time and we haven't gotten to the other question I had yet. We'll try to finish this one. Acts 7. <clears throat> Here's Stephen's sermon. And what did he do? He recounted the church in the wilderness, called it that in verse 38, Acts 7:38, talking to these physical Israelites, they recounted the church in the wilderness, and then how they rejected Moses, how the leadership then went to David as king, and to Solomon, who built a house for God. And I'm not, I've been talking, I haven't turned while you were turning, let's go, I'm going to go back there now. Acts 7. Because Stephen then makes a very dramatic statement, if I can find it. Well, I didn't write down where I was here. But he says, God does not dwell in a temple made with hands. And this is fighting words to those Jews. Does anyone see where that verse is? I, my eye won't fall on it. I know it's in there. 48. Howbeit the Most High dwells not in temples made by with hands, as says the prophet. Now what's he telling these people? He's telling them the temple in Jerusalem means absolutely nothing. God has removed his power. He's removed his spirit. The veil of the temple had been rent in twain, as I said before. They could, sew the they could sew the curtain back together, and probably the Jews tried that. Let's sew this thing back together. But God wasn't there. I don't dwell in a temple made by hands, he said. Verse 52. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them that showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers. And you wonder why they stoned him? He said, you have no authority. You have no power left. Your word doesn't count with God. And you stoned Jesus Christ, whom he did sin. They rejected him as a prophet and killed him, just as they had all the other prophets before him. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the authority they had enjoyed since Moses was now removed. Do you and I pay any attention to what some rabbi over in Jerusalem is saying? We could care less. means nothing. That power, that authority was taken from them. What did Christ say? Jerusalem is Sodom and Egypt, Revelation 11.8. That is what he considers Jerusalem today, Sodom and Egypt. And those who were ruling there as Jews are Sodomites and Egyptianites, I guess you might have to say. The physical temple is nothing. We are the temple of God. This temple was destroyed shortly after in 70 AD. The Pharisees simply had no seat to sit on after that. What does Christ say? Jesus is living his life in us, not a temple made with hands. What are the daily sacrifices today? Our prayers and songs to God. This casts a serious doubt, in my mind at least, on whether the physical sacrifices need to be restored in Jerusalem prior to Christ's return. Ours are the sacrifices that count. Our living sacrifice is a human being before God. And maybe it will still be done as a physical manifestation by the Jews for the Jews in a physical way. But it has nothing to do with any spirituality. Revelation 11 shows John, a minister and an apostle, measuring what? The temple, the church, the altar, and the people who worship there. 
the church, he says, the court of the Gentiles leave without. Everything is given over to the Gentiles to trample except the church. And part of the church is going to be left behind and get trampled by the Gentiles as well, very shortly. Then the next chapter, <clears throat> Acts 8, shows the remnant of the church taken to safety so the spiritual temple is not trodden. The only ones outside the place of safety who are protected, apparently, are the two witnesses who will then confront the world. Meanwhile, the church is in safety and been given her final preparation. A covenant is being set up, Revelation 12.1. Let's make a couple more points here and then we'll stop. Revelation 12.1, there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Not seven churches, not seven spirits at this point. But when God begins to put the church together in a place of safety, and that's what the context of chapter 12 is, about the church fleeing, he will begin rebuilding it in twelve tribes. Why? Because twelve times twelve is perfect government. 144,000 will be comprised of 144,000 people. So it will be twelve tribes again. Isaiah 49, verse 6. I'll turn back. You might just write it down. You don't have to go back because it's just a quick reference. But Isaiah 49 and verse 6. And he said, It is the right thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. And I will also give you for a light to the Gentiles. So God is going to restore the twelve tribes, twelve thousand in each, and they will be the first fruits of God. Matthew 19, verse 28. Matthew 19, verse 28. <clears throat> and Jesus said to them, Verily I say to you, that you which have followed me, not the Jews who didn't follow him, but you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That takes you right back to Revelation 21, where he said, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. Twelve apostles were there, twelve gates, ruling over 144,000. And everyone that has forsaken houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or land, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Now, Revelation 3, Revelation 3 and verse 12, one that you're very familiar with. Him that overcomes will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. So Revelation 21 is talking about the church. It's talking about the first fruits who will have, who will become pillars in the temple and will be called the city of my God and will be called New Jerusalem. Startling, isn't it, when you put it in that context? And we're not at all done with Revelation 21, but I don't have time today. But in encapsulating this, John 10, 16, we are the other sheep, brethren. The Jews were the original sheep. And he is building a fold right now of first fruits to be a part of his kingdom. Now, I didn't get to Matthew 22, 1 through 14, 
and the guest is the wedding. But God willing, I'll plan on getting into that next time and answer that question because if there are only 144,000 brides, then who are the guests? Automatic question that comes up, but there is an explanation for that, and we will get to it when we get when we carry on with this next time. So with that, this transmission is ended.